Well, I've taught music lessons for about 15 years now, and as a music teacher or as a teacher in general, as many of you guys know, you ultimately set the agenda, the course of learning for your students. Of course, you take into account the, um, the desires of the students, what they're wanting to learn, especially in music lessons. Not every kid wants to learn the same thing. You take into account the personalities and the learning styles of the students. But then it's on you as a teacher to set the direction uh, because the student doesn't fully know how to get from point A, where they are today, to point B, where they want to get. Um, otherwise, they likely wouldn't be taking lessons. So they might say in piano lessons, I want to learn uh, Debussy's Claire de Lune. Great piece. Um, and I'd say, all right, let's sit down. Let's start learning how to read music. You got to learn how to read music and some other things before you can play that song. Or they might say, I want to be able to play on the worship team at church. Okay, let's learn some chords and some music theory and talk about rhythm and those kinds of things. Again, a teacher has to know how to get a student from this place to the place that they want to get. And yet from the student's perspective, and all of us have been students at some point in our lives, we don't always understand every step of that journey, right? We don't always see the necessity uh, of every part of that journey. So for piano, all of the basics of timing and, and rhythm and dynamics and all of these Italian words you have to learn uh, can seem far removed from the end goal. Just teach me how to play Claire de Lune. Well, if we sat down right now, you could maybe read two or three notes in that piece and you'd quickly get really frustrated and you'd give up. So we have, we have a journey. And so much, the, much of the same scenario, in fact, often faces us when we approach God's word in the Bible. We can sometimes encounter things that don't seem immediately relevant or necessary to where we are right now or to where we're going. Um, sometimes it doesn't seem to be answering the questions and the, the needs that we find most pressing in our lives. And this is certainly the case when you go straight through books of the Bible, as we often do on Sunday mornings. Uh, God sets the agenda, and sometimes his agenda doesn't always match with ours. We might be a bit confused by it. Where are we going? How is this relevant? But this is one of those times that we need to remember that we are students, which is what the biblical word disciple means. We are learners, we are students, and God is our great teacher who knows more than we do. He knows us, he knows what we need, he knows the course, the beginning from the end, and where he's taken us. And this is especially helpful to keep in mind today as we come to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah may not seem to readily give us what is most pressing, especially if we tend to approach the Bible mainly as a, just a, a book of morals. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? Or if we approach the Bible as simply a book of doctrine, just tell me what to believe. Or even if we approach the Bible as, um, if we think that everything can be suf sufficiently grasped through pure logic, through left brain rational analytical thinking. We were just watching Star Trek last night, as if we were just a bunch of Spocks. And all that we needed is just pure, rational, left-brain thinking. Well, if this is all we allow the Bible to do or to be, Zechariah might be 
difficult for us, might seem irrelevant at times. But if God is speaking through all of his word, as we believe, and if sometimes we need more than just lists of doctrine and and morals and ethics and more than just step-by-step analytical thinking, if sometimes we need vivid images and symbols to activate our imagination, then Zechariah just might have something for us. And then even beyond that, if God's story is much grander and greater than we realize, if he's working out his grand story throughout eternity, through all history, in all of these diverse ways, then Zechariah certainly has much value for us. Okay, so with that in mind, we're going to get into Zechariah. This is the longest of the minor prophets. We do have just one left. Um, We have 14 chapters. We're certainly not going to read all of that. The first six chapters of Zechariah are somewhat like the book of Revelation. It's kind of like the Old Testament version of Revelation. There's there's a series of visions that contain striking images and symbols. And also much like the book of Revelation, Zechariah pulls together all of these grand themes and and, um, images and language and prophecies and promises from from all of Scripture before, and then builds on them, and then it points forward in some very surprising ways to the New Testament and to Jesus. And it's one of the most quoted um, Old Testament books in the New Testament. So to organize our way through this, we're going to look at three things relating to God's promises. God's promises um, are the overarching theme that we find in Zechariah. So first, we'll look at the need for God's promises. Second, the nature and content of God's promises. And third, the means of God's promises. And I'll just have you consider at the very beginning that God's promises are probably more important than you think. Like, again, the way we tend to come to the Bible may not always be exactly what God is giving us in the Bible, but God's promises and the keeping of his promise, promises is, is, a central, um, is something of central importance in God's word. Okay, so first, the need for God's promises. We'll start at the very beginning. Zechariah 1, 1, and read the first six verses. In the eighth month, in the year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. So Zechariah begins uh, the same exact year, in fact, as the last book we looked at, Haggai, last week, uh, the year 520 B.C. Again, if you remember from last week, the people of Judah had been released from their exile in Babylon um, for a number of decades. They were, they were there. They had, some of them had started returning to the land, their own land that God had given them. They had begun to repair the temple, which had been destroyed when they had been taken to Babylon, and all of this was a sign that God was with them, that God was 
still their God and who was fulfilling their, his promise to bless them. But though they had returned physically, their hearts were not yet fully returned to God. Uh, they had not fully recommitted to the covenant. Um, there was still injustice in the ways that they were living towards one another. And so God calls on them to return with all of their hearts. And one of the things that we can see right off the bat here is that God is after a relationship with us, right? God isn't content that to merely bring his people into a good land, bless them, give them peace and security from their enemies, and then just kind of back off and let them go. God is not simply about making us secure and successful and happy so that we can be self-sufficient and no longer need him. Just like being this cosmic genie that we can just come to whenever we have a need, but then all other times we just ignore him, find him rather insignificant and unnecessary. No, God is always working to draw us into a relationship of mutual love to lead us to trust him and to love him, to worship him, to enjoy him, and to obey him. And up until this point, to this end, for this kind of relationship, he has dealt with his people in both both great judgment, as our sermon series uh, title says, great judgment for their sins and greater mercy despite their sins. When this gen- current generation's uh, fathers and, and mothers disobeyed God and hardened their hearts, uh, Zechariah will go on to say that they made their hearts diamond hard. They comp- continually rejected God's invitations to come back into his mercy. God didn't just be- sit back and say, well, I guess they're content without me. Oh, well, I tried. No, God delivered them eventually into the hands of their enemies allowed the temple to go into ruin. Because ultimately they were made for him. And no amount of life apart from him, no matter how peaceful and comfortable and secure and happy, was not life at all. Similarly for us, life apart from him, no matter how comfortable and peaceful and secure we feel, is no life at all. God is not content to leave us there, but desiring that all would come to the knowledge of him. And so even as they are, this previous generation is going off into exile, into Babylon, God began giving them many promises that this was not the end. The judgment was not the last word. And so Jeremiah had prophesied that they'd be in Babylon for 70 years. Uh, you're likely familiar with Jeremiah 29.11, well-known Bible verse, Uh, But the larger context of that is extremely important and relevant to to this. So let me just read a few verses. Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, So God is not only blessing them, but he's also turning their hearts to call upon him. And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so at this time in Zechariah, these 70 years are almost up. 
Some of the people had, had returned to the land. The temple rebuild project had begun. And people are wondering, is this the time uh, of these promises? Is this the time that God is again going to bless us, give us a future and a hope? Would this mysterious Messiah figure and, and the age of salvation and peace and prosperity that he would inaugurate, would that now come to pass well, as much as there was reason for hope, there was also reason to doubt. They were, at this time, still a very small and insignificant people. The, the temple project that had begun had, had met opposition, had met frustration, and they had stopped. It certainly didn't look like the temple would ever, which was God's dwelling place among them, which was a sign of God's blessing and presence. It didn't look like it would ever attain to the, its former glory. Furthermore, the, the very faithfulness and, and coldness of heart that had led them into exile, that had led them to receive God's judgment, was still present. So God was pleading with them to return to him with all their hearts. Well, in many ways, we live in a similar time. We live in a similar time of waiting and tension and wondering. If you're a Christian, you have been rescued from the, the exile and judgment that is your sin. You have been rescued from the condemning power and the indwelling power of sin. You have seen God's goodness as he's sent Jesus to suffer and die for you. You've seen God's compassion. You've seen and you know that God is with you and for you. He's promised to work for your good, to give you a future and hope. You've been rescued from hopelessness, from despair, from striving for identity and worth. You've been rescued from being at war with God and at the core of your being, from loving yourself and many other things more than God. And yet, so many of God's promises and so much of God's goodness still seems far out. We, we still batter, battle bitter trials and questions and doubts. We, we deal with tears and, and death. We, we find ourselves weak. We feel discontent and frustrated. We sin and then we have to deal with its effects. We have to deal with other, the effects of others' sin against us. And at times, all of this causes us to wonder if God is really there. If he's really good, if this is what, if he is, if this is really what being his beloved child in this world is meant to look like. In a way, the temple that is our bodies, the dwelling place of God, remains unfinished. And so we too have a need for God's promises. We too have a need for hope that God is going to complete what he has begun, that he's going to be true to his word. Cling to what Peter calls God's very great and precious promises. Again, this is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. God has said, God has promised. This leads to our second point. What is the nature or content of God's promises? So Zechariah builds on some of these major themes and, and promises of Scripture. And in the first part of the book, as I said, he does this through eight visions that use symbolic imagery, images to capture attention. So we're going to look at a couple of these 
to connect into these promises of God that run throughout Scripture. So one of these grand biblical promises is that God will bless his people, as he had promised to Abraham many years ago. So let's look at the first of these visions, chapter 1, verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebet, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been very angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked to me, So the angel who talked to me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So the the big idea here is that God is keeping his promise. God is keeping his promise to the descendants of Abraham. Even though he had used Babylon to punish them, he will now punish Babylon for their arrogance in bringing disaster upon them. He's going to restore Israel to her place, build the temple, and overflow her with prosperity. And one of the things to note here is that all of this depends on God showing mercy. God could have given up on his people when they repeatedly reject him. He could have left his people in Babylon and given up on them there. Uh, Judah had been exceedingly wicked and unfaithful, and their exile to Babylon is exactly what God said would happen if they were unfaithful to the covenant. But God has committed himself to a course of action that depends on his mercy. God has committed himself to a course of action that depends on his mercy. And why? So that His people would not only fear him, but love him. So that they would not only just come to him begrudgingly, but come willingly and joyfully. See that he is exceedingly good, their greatest good, and see that he is worthy and better than anything else in life. And this is still what God is doing. Still, God is leading us to see that he is gracious and good and not only worthy of being feared and obeyed, but worthy of being enjoyed and loved and delighted in. 
hence he can command us to rejoice in him always. But as we go on, we find that God's promises and his purposes don't only relate to the people of Israel. And God makes that very clear in Zechariah. So a portion of another one of these visions in chapter 2, verse 11, says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So again, if we go back to God's original promise to this man Abraham, made many years ago, we we know even from then that it didn't only concern the descendants of Abraham. God had said, I will bless you and make your name great, and so that you will be a blessing. So they were to be a blessing, and then he goes on and says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God's work among and through the Israelites, God's work to dwell with them and reveal himself to them and through them is so that many nations shall join themselves to the Lord and shall be his people. This promise should be on our minds as we get to the end of Jesus' earthly life, and he says, go and make disciples of all nations. This is the culmination of what God has been doing. And then it should be on our minds as we read in Revelation in several places, but like Revelation 7, where we are told of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, and people, and language, standing before the throne and the Lamb, and they're crying out, salvation belongs to our God. So God's plan and purposes is is over all the world, pertains to all the world. He is Lord over all. And he is creating a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who, who joyfully sing, salvation belongs to our God. So what specifically do these plans involve? How is God going to do this? Well, look at chapter 5. This is the seventh vision, starting at verse 5. It says, then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Now, some of you are very literally minded, and you want to figure out every little detail of this and parse it out and, and figure out what, it's, what it means. But the big idea, the overall point, the effect, we're not going to do that. The big idea is quite clear. Sin and wickedness is being taken away once and for all in this, in this basket with a leaden weight on it. It's being taken away to a far land to be built a house, never to return and rear its head. 
And so part of the blessing and the restoration that God has promised involves the, the once and for all sufficient dealing with sin and guilt and shame and Satan and death in a way that, in a way that the law could never do, in a way that our efforts could never do, in a way that no king could bring about by, by righteous ruling over the people and leading them in a good way, in a way that Israel could never attain to and we could never attain to. God will effectively deal with the problem of sin. But more than that, there's also a need for faithfulness, right? There's not just a need for forgiveness as if God's goal was to create a forgiven but unchanged people, a people who are no longer under his, his hand of judgment, but who still ignore and reject him and are faithless towards him. No, there's a need for a faithful people. And so just as God had said many other times through many other prophets, we are told in chapter 8 here that Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. And then at several points as you read through Zechariah, there's, there's commands for the people to diligently obey the Lord. So even in the midst of these promises of God's forgiveness, there is still a call for faithfulness and a promise that God will bring about a faithful people. And yet none of these promises find their fulfillment in the, life of, in the lifetime of Zechariah. The problem of sin remains. Uh, 500 years go by, Jesus comes on the scene to the descendants of these people, and it's clear that there is still a need for forgiveness. There is still a problem of faithlessness. Now, before moving on, just stop and consider the heart of God who makes such promises, who commits himself to such a path, and does so fully knowing what that path involves, fully knowing the end from the beginning, fully knowing that the path to a just forgiveness of sinners leads through the, the suffering and death of the cross. Sometimes we can focus so much on the objective workings of salvation, which are wonderful and, and great, but that we fail to look behind them and sufficiently consider the heart of God that put them into motion and that carried them out. That God committed himself from the beginning of time to grant blood-bought mercy to a sinful and, and wayward and rebellious people. God is creating a people who display his glory and grace. They're not a worthy and great people. They are a, a people who display the greatness and worthiness of God. So how, how does God do this? What is the means of his promises? Third and final point, how will God finally fulfill all of these promises and prophecies? Well, there's lots of ways to, to get at this question. There's lots of themes and, and, and language and, and roles and institutions, even in just in Zechariah that we could look at. But I want to look at two roles or institutions that develop throughout the Old Testament that become increasingly significant in Zechariah and then point forward to God's plans for the future. 
And that is the roles or the offices of priest and king. So in the life of Israel, as you read the Old Testament, we find that the king is one who rules over them and is to lead them in the way that is right, is to lead them to life. And this king, whoever is ruling in this position, is, meant, is, is to be righteous, is to be committed to God and his word, is to be just and, and, and gracious and fair in his dealings with the people. Likewise, the priest who God gave uh, and this office that God gave to the people, uh, he was to represent the people before God. He was to um, make sacrifices to atone for their sin. And he also was to be righteous and, and holy and clean, both actually and through ritual. And yet, as you probably know, most of Israel's kings were did not match up to that standard. By and large, they were unrighteous, if not completely wicked. And they led the people to, to turn away from God, to worship idols, and thus led them into their exile. And often the priests were no better. There's some extremely wicked priests in Scripture who abused their role in horrific ways. And yet, there is word of a righteous king to come, from the line of David, the likes of David, the greatest king. And then, as you keep reading, there are hints that this king to come might also be a priest. He might both lead God's people and represent them, and that he might finally be righteous. And I think this is one of those points where we need to stop and go back to what we said at the beginning that sometimes when we approach Scripture, God is communicating things that might be different than what we expected. That if we're just looking for an immediate, like, tell me what to do, tell me what to believe, we might not always find that, but we see this grand story that God is providentially working out. That every little aspect of history, God has been working together for His purposes to fulfill His promises, leading His people teaching his people through his word in various ways. And so in a number of places in Scripture, we see these two institutions, king and priest, come together. Uh, one of them, you women who are just going through the Hebrew study, just considered. So one is with the very mysterious character of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Uh, we don't know very much about Melchizedek. We're told very little bit about him. But what we do know is that he is called a... Uh, king of Salem. He's a Canaanite king of Salem, which is likely a precursor of Jerusalem. And then he's also a priest of God Most High, which is interesting. He's a Canaanite, but he's a priest of the one true God. And right after we are told in Genesis 12, where Abraham is told that those who bless him uh, will be blessed, we find this priest king Melchizedek blessing Abraham. And then we find this theme and Melchizedek himself picked up and continued to be built up in Psalm 110. It's a short psalm, and you could certainly spend a lot of time trying to unpack it, but essentially David writes it, David the king, and he speaks of his Lord who will sit 
at the God the Father, Yahweh's right hand. So you have God the Father, and then you have David's Lord, who, who is that? And this Lord has the authority of God, and he exercises a kingly rule over all of the earth. And yet then he goes on to say in Psalm 110 that this kingly Lord, this Lord of David, is a priest forever after the order of or in the vein of Melchizedek. That's interesting. Who is this priest forever, this Lord of David's, who is a, a king? He's a king and priest. And you could carry this theme in other places in Scripture, but in Zechariah we find, again, these two roles come together in several places. I just want to look at a couple. So if one is in chapter 6, verse 9 to 14. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobiah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So Joshua is the high priest for these exiles in, back in Judah. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall between the, be between them both, and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to them, to, to Helam, Tobiah, Jediah, and Han, the son of Zephaniah. Okay, again, don't get lost in, in all of the details here. This seems to be a symbolical act where Joshua the high priest is crowned and made to represent this branch figure whom the prophet Jeremiah had previously spoken of. And this branch figure builds the temple of the Lord, bears royal kingly honor, and sits and rules on his throne. Along with him, we are told that there is a priest also on his throne, and the council of peace shall between them both. And the crown, which is a sign of the king, shall be in the temple, which is where the priests serve of the Lord. So again, the mingling of this, these priests, this priest and king, in a way that can kind of be confusing, Kind of, kind of brings the two roles together, and we're told that the result is peace. And then Zechariah continues to speak of this, this figure, this king, tells us more about this coming king in chapter 9, which is a passage you are likely familiar with, which is picked up both in John's gospel and Matthew's gospel to specifically refer to Jesus. Says, rejoice greatly, so the people are told, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow should be cut off, so bringing peace is what that means, and he shall speak peace to the nations, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So the people are told to joyfully anticipate, wait for a king who is the antitype of all the kings that they've had before. All the kings that they had known, all the other kings of the other peoples that they had known. This king is righteous and bearing salvation. 
He's not proud and arrogant, but humble. And he shall speak peace to the nations and have this universal rule. And finally, one last passage to kind of complete this picture, and then we'll unpack what this means. In chapter 12 of Zechariah, God speaks of the work that this priest king will do. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, a a phrase uh, cited in John uh, 19 to refer to Jesus, him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps over a firstborn. Uh, it goes on to, to, to call out specifically the lines of David, the kingly line, and the, lines of Le- and the line of Levi, the priestly line. And then, finally, chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. All right, what is going on here? What is the significance of all of this? What is God doing with all of this? I think one way to help us understand this is to go to 1 Corinthians 1. And Paul makes a statement there twice where he sums up the reason that God has ordained salvation to work as he has. The reason that God has worked through all of these various ways and priests and kings and all of this providential working of God throughout history and leading up to Jesus and and his suffering and death. Why has God worked this salvation? Why are we reading Zechariah about what God has done way in the past of these priests and kings and these strange visions and this woman in a casket with a leaden cover? And why are we reading all this? What is the point? Well, Paul says this, so that, so he's summing up the reason for God's salvation, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then he says it again, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. No human being might boast in the presence of God, and let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so the reason we have a need for a righteous and humble and wise and godly king to save us from our enemies, even from ourselves, but no such king has been found, is that God alone is our righteous and humble and wise king who saves us from our enemies, even from ourselves. The reason we have a need for a faithful and pure priest to atone for our sins And represent us before God. But no such priest has been found up until Jesus. Is that God alone intends to be our faithful and pure priest. Who who himself deals with our sin and guilt. And reconciles us to God. And so God's purpose, which Paul is getting at. Is to first... On the one hand, make us despair of placing any hope or confidence in ourselves or any human means of salvation or any human ruler or any movement or cause or government to humbly acknowledge the sin and evil that is not just out there, but that is in our own hearts. But then on the other hand, God's purpose is to cause us to boast, which means to 
rejoice in, find contentment and great satisfaction in, delight in, glory in, and make much of and see the surpassing worth of God and what He has done for us. In Jesus. And if this is the case, if this is what God is doing, making us rejoice and boast in Him, then it is obvious that He's not content to create a people who just begrudgingly obey Him and just begrudgingly try to do enough to keep Him off their back, who don't really trust Him, who fear Him but don't love Him, who are compelled to obey to some degree but aren't really overjoyed with Him. No. God's intent is creative people who delight in him above all else. And to do this, he has shown us that Jesus, the priest king, is completely sufficient for all of our needs. So the means of God's promises being fulfilled is the priest king Jesus and Jesus alone. This was God's plan from the beginning. Salvation is of the Lord. And this is so that we might trust him, we might love him, we might worship and obey him, beginning now and into eternity. And so even as we go on, if you call yourself a Christian, this is not just about making a one-time decision for Christ. This is continually coming back to, as we talked about earlier, facing our weaknesses and our sins and our shame and our frustrations and our fears again and again and realizing that God's point is to help us see despair of placing any hope in ourselves and put all our hope in him. Let's pray.